This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by GoGo. Introducing SmartShield, GoGo's exclusive customer membership program that protects your best in-class, in-flight Wi-Fi system. GoGo's SmartShield membership provides greater cost control, exclusive discounts, and peace of mind with equipment protection. Plus, you can still take advantage of savings of up to $35,000 on your GoGo Advance install. Get technology that adapts as you do, and when you order by December 31st, 2021, you'll have until December 31st next year to install and save. Visit gogo.to slash aopa-podcast to learn more. That's gogo.to slash aopa-podcast. This week on Hangar Talk, former NTSB Chairman Robert Sumwalt lands back where he started. And there are new medical regulations for commercial balloon pilots. The Bonanza Society gets more creative with rudder vader replacement. 42 flight training professionals are recognized. Finally, the FAA approves more engines for a new fuel. Ian, let's do some hangar talk. Are you ready? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterattack final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Ian, before we get started on this, I'm going to put you on the spot. Even before we introduce our special guest, you, you have been uh, studying for a check ride, Ian. How did your auto gyro check ride uh, go? Yeah, I did. I did take a check ride. Um, it went well, thankfully. I've taken, I think I counted maybe nine. I think, I think that is maybe my ninth check ride. It was the easiest one. And I only say that because I had to do, they made me do 20 hours of training. And so I felt super prepared. And in the end, I was glad for it. I, I was a little annoyed at first that I had to do that much instruction. Um, but it, it was it was worth it. And um, I, I it was great. I had a great time. Well, I want to congratulate you and all of our Hangar Talk podcast listeners have been paying attention for the past few uh, months as you've been studying for your auto gyro. I'm going to throw it back to you to give us a special guest. Yeah. So Zara Rutherford, who has accomplished more already than you and I ever will in an airplane. And she's only what, I think 19. She is, as we record this in Russia on her way around the world. She'll be when this launches, I think in South Korea, she's a a phenomenal young person who is taking essentially an ultralight around the world and an incredible feat. 
And we want to give uh, props to Alyssa Cobb, who tracked Zara down and got a nice interview with her. And uh, we look forward to hearing a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. Okay, so first let's talk about the news. Former NTSB Chairman Sumwalt, a nice guy, good friend to General Aviation, a longtime and experienced pilot, has landed his retirement gig, and it is at the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, where he got a master's degree, chairing the new Center for Aviation and Aerospace Safety. And, you know, Sumwalt served as the... uh he basically served under three presidents, and I think yeah. that's unique also. That is cool. So he yeah. cro- crossed the border there with, with a couple of different presidents. And he started in 2006 and had a couple of different posts there, too. So he's got some chops. He also has good flying chops because mm-hmm. his experience includes basically a 24-year flying career with Piedmont Airlines and U.S. Airways with 14,000 hours. Yeah. So he knows no what slouch. it means to be a pilot. And now, do you recall how he got into the safety realm? Yeah, this is a great story. And I didn't know this until you you wrote the piece. But it turns out he sort of happened upon an accident and and just sort of, you know, you know, the whole like act like you belong thing. Well, he acted like he belonged and, uh, I don't know, snuck his way in, I guess, to the accident scene and apparently was enamored ever since. Indeed, that was in uh, that was back when he was 17 years old and a University of South Carolina student. That's where he got his bachelor of science. So uh, yeah, he's had an interest in uh, in aviation ever since, and that accident prompted him to take flying lessons to start oh, on wow. his on his road in aviation. People might ask, what is he going to do at Embry Riddle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's going to look into safety issues related to unmanned aircraft systems. Something else that we've been talking about advanced air mobility technologies Hmm. and human to machine or machine to machine interfaces those are just some of the examples that he will be looking at as far as the realm of safety at embry riddle wow yeah and as we've talked about many times in the past lots of work to do there so congrats and and best of luck to uh former chairman uh sumwald and it's we'll be interested to see what he comes up with want to move on. This is a topic you and I have talked about a little bit. Uh, these are balloon accidents, commercial balloon accidents. We've touched on a few of them just from a news perspective. But now the FAA has come out because of some congressional um, legislation and said that if you are a commercial balloon pilot, you will have to have a medical certificate. If you're a commercial balloon pilot, you need to have a second class medical certificate when operating for hire. And so this is different. And Ian, we've um, talked about some of the accidents, the balloon accidents on Hangar Talk before. And yeah. uh, you and I were chatting a little bit ahead of time. But I remember a particularly bad one in 2016 over in Texas. And the the pilot of that one uh, basically had ADHD. It was determined later. Yeah. And 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 some other issues were also um, involved. But that's something to think about because that's a, a medical condition. Yeah. And um, and then you did some um, you did a little bit of diving uh, into some more recent activity. Yeah. Well, you had reminded me about this one in Albuquerque that happened. I guess what just this year maybe where unfortunately five people died, including the pilot. And and so one of the things that they found soon after in the toxicology was that there was cocaine and marijuana in the pilot system. And, you know, not to say that those things directly caused the accident, but potentially uh, if it would have come out in a urine screening during a medical, then he would have been denied that medical. So yes, that's the um, key. Absolutely. Right. So I think, you know, the, the NPRM is just about to come out. And so you will have two months to comment. If you're in the balloon community, we encourage you to do so. 
However, this was in the 2018 FAA Reauthorization Act, so it's going to happen one way or another. You know, when it happens, how it happens exactly, maybe that those things will be tweaked a little bit, but I, I think it will be a done deal at some point. And I do know that folks in the balloon community, including my friend Colin Graham, who listens to Hangar Talk when he can, um, have some concerns about this, and they have voiced uh, concerns in the past. But, you know, the balloon community itself is pretty tight-knit. Yeah. Ian, and, and having covered uh, some of the events, especially in Albuquerque, it's a family affair. And so a lot a lot of the times you have um, families and mm-hmm. close mm-hmm. friends that are in the balloon community that they pool their resources, and they want this to be a fun and safe activity. So they're quite concerned about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. We'll have to see where that goes. Okay. Hey, moving on. So um, Bonanzas, VTEL Bonanzas, they are both revered and feared, I would say. Owners love them, and uh, but they can be difficult to maintain in part because they've had these flutter accidents with the Rudder Vader. And now they're having trouble finding parts, replacement parts for these because they're so old. So the American Bonanza Society, their Air Safety Foundation, has gone really aggressive with trying to get a new replacement solution. I would say really aggressive is an understatement. You know, the, uh, the Bonanza <laughs> Society started out with a $100,000 award for anyone who could come up with a, a different material or a different way to make this happen. And they've increased that to 500,000 bucks. Hmm. The issue is that those skins are made of magnesium. Ian, if you'll recall, and the magnesium is you know, basically it's an out of, out of production piece, you know, on the Rudder and how um, important is it? Well, just a, a few ounces of, uh, of, of different you know, weight really can cause a flutter issue in the details of the Bonanza. And that is uh, significant. It can lead to mm-hmm. some catastrophic results. And so, and so the, um, the Bonanza Society has upped the ante quite a bit to get some folks thinking about how could we replace these skins with some other kind of new technology. Yeah, and I, they're encouraging their members to throw in another five hundred thousand to make it a million. Wow, this is a million dollars. I, I love this. I would. If, I, know, I wish I, I was know. a metallurgist. I, I would jump right on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Go back and get your engineering degree and come up with something. Exactly. Yeah, it is. I think I. I just love this idea. I think it's really creative. It's you know the community banding together. You know they're not demanding something. They're offering you know the carrot, and they they recognize the risk to their aging airplane, and they say, hey, we need to come up with a solution. We're going to throw in the money behind it. I think the idea is that the STC will eventually become sort of more public, so that if the community funds it, the community benefits, which is really smart. Yep. Interesting. The deadline for this is December thirty first, twenty twenty six. Which I don't know. Do you think that says something maybe about how optimistic they are about a quick solution? You know, I'm not a Bonanza Vtail owner, so we probably should talk to Adrian Eichhorn about this or or Shinji Maeda, who have both been on the program. But, uh, you know, I just don't know how you would come up with it. That is five years away. And the technology that we have now, you know, I just don't understand. why. You know, why can we not make more magnesium that looks just the same as when it came off the line? But but that was back in the 60s and the 50s, you know, and even even before that, and I, I guess mid-40s uh, was when the first V-tails came out off the line. But it, yeah, it's it's incredible when you look at a reskin rudder vader. You and I did a little research to this. It kind of puts it in perspective when you look at a visual of that. And um, you know the 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 way they came out of the factory originally, they're flat. Mm. The grooves are are deeper, mm-hmm. um, and and the weights are a different weight. You know, they're counterweights in those uh, rudder vaders. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, why not carbon fiber? Why doesn't that work? 
Hmm. Yeah, maybe. I suppose it's possible. I mean, you know, the way this works is obviously they can go and as long as they can prove that it's structurally sound and performs the same, you know, they have that possibility. The one thing I, I gather from this is that the testing is really expensive. So okay. it's like you can, you know, there's like, well, you can set up in your, you know, whatever living room and I don't know how engineers work, but, you know, get your drafting table out or whatever. Theorize. <laughs> whatever these days. Do some computer yeah. modeling. Yes. Yeah. So you could do that. Right. But then at some point you got to manufacture it. Um, you got to come up with a prototype and then you have to pay to test it. And I understand that the, the testing can be hugely expensive, like a couple hundred grand just to test it. And that's assuming it's going to work. Right. I see, so, I see. so I think now they're getting closer to where the money might actually pay off for somebody who has an idea. And uh, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll see. And my, my sense is be- because it could help pay for that because it can help pay exactly. for that test. Yeah, that that's testing. exactly right. So a couple hundred grand just to test it. So then, well, wait a minute. Let's think about this. If it's a $500,000 reward right now, which Mm -hmm. could be matched up to another 500, so that'd be a million. So even if it costs $200,000 to test and say another 100,000, 150 to make, you know, if it, if it's matched, you'd still walk away with three quarters of a million. Yeah, you still walk away with some money. So I do think the incentive's getting there. About. Yeah, closer. Uh, I just think it's a fascinating story. So we'll, we'll follow that one as time goes on, but... Hey, we want to move on. We haven't talked about this in a long time because we had a delay, unfortunately, because of COVID. But um, we have just announced AOPA, the Flight Training Experience Awards for 2021. That is true. And in, uh, in fact, off air, you and I and other staffers here at AOPA, we were um, talking to some of these uh, flight instructors mm-hmm. and the flight schools to find out what makes them so great. Yeah. And the, what I've found so far is that there is a, just an inherent passion to teaching and education and and there's a, a lot of enthusiasm between these folks. So we've yes. had a couple of them on Hangar Talk before, and and we've you know got into their psyche a little bit. But yeah, 42 schools and 100 CFIs have earned a distinguished award, and six schools and six uh, instructors have been tapped as regional winners. Yes, so that's outstanding. Yeah, congrats to them. The they will announce a national winner uh for both uh flight school and CFI. That's going to be at the Redbird Migration Flight Training Conference in early February in Lakeland. But in the meantime, we want to talk about the regional winners. So, under the flight schools, you know, they do this obviously they they've cut the country up. So, in the Central Southwest region, in the pattern at Denton, Texas, they are the winner there. The Eastern region is Air Ventures Flying School in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It makes me think of Family Guy, Pawtucket Pat, and, you know, the beer and everything. I don't know if you watch like Family it. Guy. <laughs> um, in the Great Lakes region, the Blue Skies Flight School in Chicago, they're a perennial winner. They, they're they uh, the big player in that region. Northwest region is uh, Mountains Ridgeline Aviation in Bozeman. And the southern region is the Aviator Zone Academy in Miami. Now, I know you talked to them. You're excited about what they're doing. Yep. And in the Western Pacific, another big winner over the years is Sierra Charlie Aviation in Scottsdale. Yeah, I do recognize that name of Sierra Charlie Aviation for sure. Well, let's go into the flight instructors in the Central Southwest. Steve Fairbanks from Wills Point, Texas. In the Eastern Division, David Strasburg at Northampton, Massachusetts. In the Great Lakes area, Amber Peterson from Minneapolis, Minnesota. In the Northwest Mountains, Jess Patton from Bozeman, Montana. In the Southern area, Matt Eichel at Goldsboro, North Carolina. And Western Pacific, Sergio Ramirez from Temecula, California. 
And for a complete list of winners, you could look at AOPA.org and just scroll down uh, to the news feed or look in the You Can Fly tab. These are solely based on customer feedback. So, you know, we open up the survey every year. We say, if you've taken flight training with anybody, write in, tell us how they're doing. They're, you know, scored against these various factors. And it's only that customer feedback that, that informs these awards. So basically what it's saying is that these schools their customers love what they're doing and the flight instructors, their students love what they're doing. And the the idea is to make all schools better mm-hmm. and all CFIs exactly. better by taking some of those techniques and passing them on to the rest of the industry. So it's so we, we want to be very encouraging for the folks who are um, recognized as leaders, but also for those who are not yet recognized, your chance is still out there. You can do it. Um, and hey, before we move on to our last bit of news, we just wanted to make a, a quick announcement, and you brought this to my attention, the AOPA scholarships, the AOPA Foundation scholarship program, this helps people pay for flight training. Those scholarship applications are now open, and they are going to remain open through February 11th of next year. And uh, this is where we give away a ton of money to help people learn to fly. We gave away a million dollars last year. And uh, thanks also to the folks who have contributed to the foundation, the AOPA Foundation, to help fund that. But, you know, that's enough to get 100 folks in the air, at least. Yeah. So uh, it's no joke. And you don't have to just be um, a high school student. That, that is the majority of, of, uh, of the impetus. But there are uh, categories in for teachers as well. And there are a couple. There's basically a handful of, of uh, scholarship awards for folks who are, are pursuing professional pilot careers, too. Final bit of news, and this is really good news as we move forward on unleaded avgas. The FAA has approved hundreds of more engines for GAMI's 100-octane unleaded fuel. So we first heard about this during AirVenture this year. Mm-hmm. and Yeah, just a couple months ago. And we were promised that we would hear about more aircraft. Just a handful were mentioned back then. It was mainly the Cessna line. And um, and now there are approximately 611 engines that are included in an approved model list that was issued just on October 28th, mm-hmm. and and a handful of uh, of uh, basically a limited number of additional approvals that GAMI announced back in July. Yeah, and altogether that accounts for about 70 percent of the GA aircraft fleet's power plants. So that's pretty good, but we still have a ways to go with Yes, that. absolutely. Um, so this is a, a big step. And by the way, you mentioned, you know, we just talked about it in uh, right after AirVenture. And I remember you and I were like, oh, they say they're going to get more approvals. Are they really? And here they are. I mean, faster than certainly I expected. And pretty much right when they said they would. So that's, that's a good sign. Um, it is 70% of the engines. However... FAA stats and, you know, the GA uh, activity survey shows that it's only about, I don't know, give or take, right, 20 to 30% of the fuel sales. And so you're still talking about a situation where even if they mass produce this fuel tomorrow, it would have to be in addition to avgas. And that just doesn't seem to be commercially viable at this point. And is that because that some of the other aircraft that, that are not in this list account for more flying hours, perhaps, because exactly. maybe they're bigger airplanes with higher yes. performance engines? Exactly. You know, and they're, yeah, they're thirsty. I mean, the Cirruses and the 550 Bonanzas and all these that still need these approvals. Now, GAMI says they will be approved. Yep. They've tested them. They're going to get there. That's to be seen. Again, you know, we, we have to we have to be sort of cautiously optimistic there. And then even if all that gets approved... 
somebody still needs to make this thing distribute it well and distribute it right right so yeah there are definitely some big hurdles distribute it get it to the airports Uh, basically basically the infrastructure is something that needs to be worked on too Uh, like how do you get it from uh you know before it starts and is it via trucks to airports or pipelines how do you clean out those pipelines? How do you sanitize the trucks, you know, for the different types of mm-hmm. fuel? Then for us pilots, you know, I wonder even if there's going to be a little bit of a learning curve, like when we're, in, you know, sumping our fuel tanks, is are we looking at a different color of fuel? I just don't yeah. know the answer to that. Yeah. I'm just yeah, yeah, throwing right. it out there. Like, is it is it purple instead of blue, you know, or is yeah. it? Or something, you know. Back a long time ago in the dark ages, when I first learned to, uh, when I first learned about aviation, and my my dad had a Cherokee Six, and mm-hmm. I, I want to say that the fuel was dyed three different colors back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even when I learned in '98, the Jeppesen manual that I used, I remember it very clearly. It had the picture of the three tubes, you know, uh-huh. with different colored fuels, and yeah, I guess when when more fuels were available and for the life of me i can't even remember what the other fuel was was it 90 98 maybe you all 92 you all i don't remember i was just a little uh, kid back when my dad yeah. had airplane. but it, there was red and there was green and, and yes, i think there was exactly blue. yeah 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 yep yep so maybe i you know i don't think that there's enough airplanes flying these days that there's enough fuel sales to justify those fuels i mean we see obviously swift fuel at some airports right. we see right. even you know mogas at some airports um but when you're talking about every airport where you can reliably get it we we got a ways to go we do but we're getting there and and also yeah. you know uh, some other folks behind that you know, in a regional setup the california pilots association the statewide organization they've been pushing for that uh, 94 unleaded fuel as well and and some other uh, commitments to you know basically the environment, getting things a little yeah. bit better out that way. So there are, uh, there's, you know, groundswell uh, movements, grassroots movements uh, to get things going and to to head towards unleaded fuel. So somebody who doesn't have to worry about Avgas as she flies around the world, which is a good thing because it's hard to find some places, is Zara. Um, you know, she's flying this Shark, which is one of these European ultralight category, super cool, sleek airplanes. As we said, she is... Well, she's in Asia now and has done kind of the hard stuff and is working her way through the home stretch. I'm talking to Zara Rutherford. She's a 19-year-old pilot who's flying solo around the world in a microlight, and she's hoping to inspire young women along the way. Zara, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Now, I understand you're already partway around the world on your journey. You're in Nome, Alaska. Is that right? Yes, I arrived about a week ago, and I just did my Russian visa expiration date. So I've been waiting for a new and Yeah, I'm in Nome, but... And is Russia your next stop? It is. Um, which is like a three-hour flight from here. Straight. It'll be one of my most challenging I think. Oh, okay. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your aviation background? I understand you came from a family who's involved in aviation. Yes. So I have been very lucky. My parents are pilots. And so I really grew up around airplanes and aviation and the I mean, that's all I know, really. 
And since I was really young, a dream of mine was to fly around the world. But that's that's always what it was, a dream kind of I didn't think it'd be possible. I didn't think it was a reality be a reality. It was more of a you know, that'd be a really cool thing to do, but as if it's ever gonna happen. And <laughs> then I finished school and I knew that I was finishing school. So I figured, well, I could use that time off <laughs> to, to do something pretty crazy and fly around the world. And now you're flying a microlight. That's not as well known here in the United States. Tell us what you're flying, how it performs, and why you chose it. Yes, yeah, so I'm flying uh, a shark. It's a microlight, as you said. It is the fastest microlight in the world, so it was a relatively easy decision to make. It's also very safe, um, efficient fuel-wise, and it's been great. It's been, I mean, I'm halfway around the world, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. Gets me to places relatively quickly, but then I also get to enjoy the views. So I love it, but the one thing is that it's only VFR, so it, that has brought some additional challenges along the way. But yeah, I love it. It's a bit, it's a bit small sometimes, but you get used to it, and it's really fun. Now, during your flight in the U.S., so you've gone down the East Coast, and now you've gone back up the West Coast to Alaska. Partway through that journey, you got to meet the current world record holder for being the youngest woman to fly solo around the world, Shasta Wise. How how was it getting to meet her and talk to her? She She's amazing, so I was really happy to meet her. Um, it's really nice being able to talk to someone who kind of knows what you're going through, knows what kind of challenges you know, you're facing. And she she's an incredible woman. She was really, really helpful in everything. And I still, you know, every once in a while, I'll text her and I'll say, you know, I'm flying here now. What was your experience? Do you have any tips? For example, I don't know anyone who has flown in a Southeast Asia apart from like her and other world around us. So it's great having that person there that I can turn to if I need advice. What has been your biggest challenge so far on the around the world flight? Oh, there have been quite a few. It's hard to pinpoint an exact one. I think the first week was tough because I went straight into the transatlantic. So that was Scotland, Iceland, Greenland, and in Canada. And the weather was okay but the cloud base was relatively low, which meant that because I'm VFR, I have to stay below the cloud. And at one point from Iceland to Greenland, I was at 600 feet above the water, which oh. isn't fun, <laughs> especially when you know that it is very, very cold down there. So that was mentally, that was that was tough because I had to, there's also the point of no return, right? So where you have to commit and keep going. Uh, which is, it was my first solo long leg over water. But I was so happy when I reached Canada and even Greenland. It was such a, I felt really, really happy. Like I really felt like I accomplished something. And I was, yeah, I was pretty proud of myself. But I wouldn't do it again too soon. <laughs> yes, it's even hard to fly short VFR flights, let alone flying around the world VFR. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's been really, I like to say that it makes me see the world, right? So I feel like there's some days where you just kind of want to get to your next destination. But when you're VFR and you get at 10,000, whatever, and just fly, when you're VFR, you're forced to stay below the cloud and see the world right as you're flying around it. So that's a really nice aspect of it. But it's been really fun. The one thing that was annoying, especially on the transatlantic, was because I was forced to stay so low, I lost radio contact almost straight away. And so that's a weird feeling as well, knowing that you're in this North Atlantic Ocean and it's kind of just you 
and you were playing. That was uh, that's what, it makes it makes it so much more rewarding at the end of it. Definitely, and I assume you're taking lots of pictures along the way of these amazing views. Yes, pictures and videos as much as I can, whilst I'm flying. Obviously, um, <laughs> I'm trying to get into videos. So you took off on this mission August 18th. When are you planning to complete the flight? And once you do, how much territory will you have covered? I mean, the whole world, but how many countries and miles? So I'm hoping to be done uh, in November. Actually, it's quite soon, yeah, like in like a month and a bit. And then that should bring me through, I believe it's about 28,000, 29,000 miles. I need to double check that. For countries, um, that's still kind of changing. It's around either 47 or 57. I'm, I'm losing track, but yeah, so it's quite a lot of countries. But it's been, it's so amazing. And each one, it's funny how each one is unique, but also really quite similar in a way. There's, there's different kind of things about each country that I've loved learning about. Oh, what are the similarities that you've discovered? People have been really, really kind, really nice. The food, the food is relatively similar actually so far, although I think Asia will be quite different. But I just, every time I land somewhere thinking, oh, it's going to be like a completely different experience. Like I've never been to Colombia. This is going to be really weird. Very, I don't know what the people are like, da, da, da. but I mean, <laughs> it was kind of the same. And, and obviously really, really kind. The food was really good as well. The one thing that did change a lot was the climate and the uh, terrain, I guess. So, so that was that was tough because every time I would get used to flying somewhere, I'd be somewhere different, right? So I'd be in Greenland, which is pretty tough, and then Canada, which is completely different, and then you'd be along the east coast, which is kind of similar to Europe. So that was nice because I trained in Europe, and then suddenly you're in the Caribbean islands, and that is completely different to what I've to what I've done before. Then Colombia again, and so every time I got used to flying somewhere, I would just be in a completely different climate, which was is weird to kind of process it, I guess. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how you prepared for this trip, especially for all the differences in terrain and overwater flying and things like that that you prepared for? Sure. So I've been flying my whole life with my family, so a lot of uh, flying like that. I started training for my license when I was 15. But I think what has been really helpful for this trip specifically was that I would accompany, so my dad is a ferry pilot, so he'll bring, usually transatlantic, so he'll bring planes across from either America to Europe and vice versa, Europe to America, or even longer flights. So one flight that we did was Texas to India, and that was really fun. I actually had to stop off in Jordan because I had to get back to school. <laughs> but so that is kind of some experience that where it's really quality over quantity, and has been really helpful on this trip just to get used to also long flying days different weird weather sometimes that you want that wasn't forecasted <laughs> and so so i've been really lucky with that with my father's expertise and my mum being there to support me along the way and has definitely been very helpful with, for this trip Oh, I bet. That's wonderful. So what's next for you in aviation? You will have flown around the world, so that's hard to top. So in aviation, I want to get my commercial license as quickly as possible and help keep ferry flying with my dad and hopefully start doing them by myself. And then for me, I'd like to go to university next year and do, and do some engineering. But 
After that, I'm kind of I'm open to the ideas. I think one thing that was really cool in Greenland, I met some NASA scientists and they were doing climate change measurements. And what they would do is they would take a DC-3 and fly around Greenland <laughs> and drop probes into the water. And I spoke to the pilots that were bringing them around and they are really cool. So they would spend sort of their summers in Antarctica bringing usually scientists around. And so and every once in a while they'd go up to Greenland. And I just thought that is the coolest flying. It's it's challenging, but that is some really like, that is, you get some amazing, amazing stories from that. So I thought, you know, maybe that might be a potential future. <laughs> amazing. So it sounds like this will be a launching point for more extreme aviation adventures. So looking forward to my next adventure. I don't know what that will be, but I'm focusing on this one first. Now, I read on your website that you also want to become an astronaut. So how are you preparing for that? And is this helping with that goal? A dream is definitely to become an astronaut, but there's a lot of work involved, right? So I need to get to university first. And that's what I'm, I'm really doing it one step at a time because it is a lot of work and chances are slim. So I'm, I'm doing everything I can one step at a time and seeing where that takes me. Wonderful. Well, finally, what would you say to young people to encourage them in aviation and in aviation-related careers or even STEM careers? I think for me what I always say is just go for it. You get such amazing opportunities that, yes, you'll have some moments where, I guess, you know, you're unsure I had that a lot, you know, thinking about whether I wanted to go into engineering or not, or even into, well, I still have it now, right? Do I want to go into aviation straight away or do I want to go to university and do engineering? And so you kind of, if you're unsure about something because you're not used to it, it'll take you outside of your comfort zone. I think just go for it because whatever happens, you'll learn from it. And if if it doesn't work out and doesn't work out, if it does, then you've just made yourself, uh, you just got yourself an amazing career, amazing opportunities, and I think that's priceless. Yes, can't say it better than that. Well, Zara, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Thank you very much for everything. I really appreciate this interview. <laughs> yes, thank you very much, and best wishes on the other half of your flight around the world. David, I got to say, she, I know there has been a little bit written about this where people are, you know, they're coming out kind of as haters, you know, they say, well, we shouldn't be chasing these records for youngest pilots and stuff. And to me, it's a different type of flying, right? It's not what you and I do recreational. They're like athletes, you know, athletes go for records, they train, they work hard, they're professionals. And that's how she's approaching this. And like you said, they've trained for this. They have a good backup system in place. And they oftentimes, uh, and, and Zara does too, have a, a very good team behind them mm -hmm. that is basically keeping an eye on everything from navigation to technical ability. And also things like, you know, you got to get certain visas and does your passport, you know, go from this country to that. So yeah. the whole team team uh, is part of the deal. But I, I agree. I think it's a, a great thing for a young person because here's why. Not so much to try to be the youngest, but I think it's a great thing for young people to have a role model to look up to that would help other young people pursue aviation. Great point. 
All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. And don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or wherever you can get your podcast via Google or Apple. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.